If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Our Father, as we come to your word this morning to this passage, we understand, as your word tells us in other places, that these things are spiritually discerned. We know that only those who are born again can really even understand what this is about. So we pray your spirit to work mightily this morning that those here who are not saved would be saved by looking to Jesus and be born again. For his sake and his glory, amen. Please be seated. George Whitfield was one of the greatest evangelists in American history. During the 1700s, in a period that became known as the Great Awakening, He traveled all over the American colonies and preached the gospel. And he spoke to such large audiences that it's true that more people saw George Whitfield than ever saw George Washington. And one of Whitfield's favorite sermons was on this passage today. You must be born again. It is estimated that he preached a variation on that sermon over 3,000 times. The story is told of a, one woman who came up to him and said, Mr. Whitfield, why do you keep saying to us, you must be born again? And Whitfield replied, because, dear woman, you must be born again. And at the end of the day, that is the message for you this morning. You must be born again. I invite you to follow along in your own Bible and the sermon outline in your bulletin. Our passage will answer the following questions about this rebirth. First, why is it important? Why do you need it? Second, what is it? What is the rebirth? Third, how does it happen? 
And finally, for whom is this rebirth? And let me just say before we dig in, if you are self-confident in your own life and don't think you need anything from God or anyone else, none of this will likely make much sense to you. In fact, you may find what Jesus says insulting, but I would be very concerned for your soul. However, if you're starting to come to a place where you understand you can't do it, and you actually need God's power to change, and actually need to restart by God's spirit, then pay attention. Because this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. So first in your outline, why the rebirth? Number one, let's look together again, starting in verse one of our passage. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Okay, so first, who is Nicodemus? Well, John tells us that he was a ruler of the Jews, which means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was like the supreme court for the Jews. He was also a Pharisee. And as you may know, the Pharisees were very religious people, very serious about obeying the law of God. 613 commands in the Hebrew Bible, but they added on just to be sure. He was also highly educated, as we see Jesus address him later, the teacher of Israel. So Nicodemus was a religious leader of the old order Jewish tradition. As one scholar notes, he's sort of the perfect representation of the Jews, who is now facing Jesus, the perfect representation of God. That's the context for this theological dialogue that John wants us to see. There's been a growing tension, hasn't there, developing between Jesus and the Jewish leadership. We saw last week as Jesus cleared the temple, and now this confrontation. Now, it says that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Now, this may just be an incidental detail that John provides, but later in John, he tells us again that Nicodemus was the one who came at night. So, perhaps this is significant. Perhaps he was more open-minded than some of the other Jewish leaders and wanted to avoid publicity as he gathered more information about Jesus. So, he came at night. Let's look at what he says to Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he knew something of who Jesus was through the signs that Jesus performed. Now, spoiler alert, he didn't really know who Jesus was. And let me just say that most people today are like this. They know Jesus was a great teacher, or maybe even a miracle worker from God. But as we will see, he is much, much more than that. He is Lord of the universe and the Savior from heaven. And if you don't know him in that way, then you don't really know him. And Nicodemus didn't know him. Now, in terms of his engagement with Jesus, interestingly, some scholars believe this may be a formal invitation to what the Jewish elite considered a social challenge dialogue. And as was typical in Jewish culture and debate, 
He starts with a word of praise for his opponent, as it were. Now let's consider Jesus' response. Verse 3. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. (laughs) This seems like a non sequitur. Jesus' response doesn't seem to follow the statement made by Nicodemus, does it? Jesus didn't say in response, Hey, thanks, Nicodemus. I really appreciate those kind words. You're a teacher yourself, I'm told. Happy to discuss if you have questions. One rabbi to another? That's not at all what he says, is it? As Paul pointed out last week, we see at the very end of chapter 2, the last verse, Jesus himself knew what was in man. Very next verse, now there was a man named Nicodemus. Clearly John is connecting these stories. Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus, so he cuts to the chase. Jesus doesn't answer his words He answers what is behind his words. He doesn't address what's on his mind. He addresses what's in his heart. Let me try some paraphrases of this first exchange. Hey, Jesus, you're an impressive teacher. Yeah, you need to be born again. Hey, Jesus, you're doing some things that seem to indicate credibility from God. Yeah, you need a rebirth to even understand what God is doing through me. Hey, Jesus, it seems like God is with you by the signs you're performing, but we as religious leaders are still unsure and have some questions. Yeah, let me be as clear as I can. You're not going to see the kingdom unless you're born again. So here's lesson number one. When you want answers from Jesus, you don't always get what you want, but you get what you need. And this is exactly what Nicodemus needed to hear. And this is what every single one of us needs to hear. Jesus is really telling Nicodemus, even the way you're going about investigating me is wrong-headed. The manner in which you're researching me is flawed. The other gospel accounts, Jesus says to the religious leaders, you don't put new wine into old wineskins. They'll burst. This teaching from me and about me is not going to fit into your existing mold of religious categories. You need to restart with me. You must be born again. Well, why? Why do we need to be born again? Jesus says, in order to see the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean? Kingdom phrases are much more common in Matthew, Mark, and Luke John, more frequently, uses the phrase eternal life, but they're both getting at the same thing. With the arrival of Jesus the King, and especially in his work on the cross and resurrection and exaltation, the kingdom has been inaugurated. It's begun. But the consummation of that kingdom is yet future, when Jesus returns. And with all gospel accounts, there is a present aspect and a future aspect to this. What's unique about John, however, is his emphasis, as we'll see throughout the the gospel, on kingdom now, eternal life now, abundant life now. Another New Testament concept that captures this idea is the term salvation. There's a current, present aspect and a future aspect. 
It's connected to this idea of the kingdom. One day Jesus will reign over Israel and all the nations, ultimately that kingdom ushering into eternity. That blessed kingdom, that resurrection life unto eternity. If you want to see that, if you want to be a part of that, you must be born again. So nothing could be more important than this rebirth. And as it is right now, Nicodemus is spiritually blind to the kingdom. He's looking at the king, but he's not able to see the king. He's looking at these miraculous signs, but without rebirth, he's unable to discern the true meaning. He needs to be born again to see the kingdom, and so do we. Number two in your outline, let's consider what is the rebirth. Verse four. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, in the original language, Jesus' words could mean either born again or born from above. And it's probably intentionally ambiguous because both are true, as we will see. Nicodemus clearly understood Jesus in the first sense of the word, born again. But he was a very educated man. He understood Jesus was using figurative language. And in his question here, for clarification, he's not suggesting that Jesus is literally telling him to go back into the womb. He knows that's not what Jesus means. But he is interpreting this rebirth as something physical and not spiritual. And in the theology of Nicodemus, physical birth meant everything. He was a Jew. And that was good enough to see the kingdom. Now he's an elite teacher of Israel. And being an accomplished teacher himself, he picks up on Jesus' own symbolism and uses his own figurative language to ask for clarification. I am who I am. I was born a Jew. I was raised a Jew. Are you asking me to go undo that and start over? How could I go back and take on a different identity? than who I am. So in light of his confusion, Jesus restates what he's saying about rebirth in a different way. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now while there's some debate about this phrase water and Spirit, I think by far the clearest meaning is that Jesus is using this phrase to refer to the rebirth. Okay, Water and spirit are not two kinds of birth. They both relate to this rebirth, this birth from above. In verse 3 he says, you must be born again to see the kingdom. Here he says, you must be born of water and spirit to enter the kingdom. He's saying the same thing in both verses. And with water and spirit, he's almost certainly referencing a prophecy about the new covenant that would come with him in Ezekiel 36. Let me just read it. Listen for water and spirit. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
And I will put my spirit within you to cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So rebirth refers to this water and spirit activity in Ezekiel. Water cleanses, symbolizing the washing away of sins. And the spirit gives life or rebirth. The fancy theological word for this is regeneration. God's spirit regenerates us and transforms our heart spiritually, giving us a new disposition of obedience toward God that we didn't have before. As Ezekiel says, the spirit will cause you to obey God. So the rebirth both cleanses from sin and also makes a new person that wants to obey God. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. As Don Carson points out, it's not a coincidence that immediately after this passage in Ezekiel, we read about his vision of the valley of dry bones, where dead skeletons take on flesh and come to life. This is a picture of this rebirth. Now, before leaving the, uh, the Ezekiel passage, I just wanted to mention one more thing, since it mentions a new heart. Our emphasis this year, if you remember, at Orchard, is healthy hearts. Well, we learned something today that's fundamental about our emphasis. You cannot have a healthy heart until you first have a new heart. You must be born again. Rebirth is the starting point for the Christian life. So as this theme of healthy hearts resurfaces throughout the year, don't try to apply anything we're talking about unless you're born again. Religion without rebirth is worthless. This rebirth or cleansing from sin and God's spirit indwelling you is the beginning of obedience that pleases God and everything that follows in the Christian life. Now Jesus continues clarifying what the rebirth is. Verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Okay, this goes directly to Nicodemus's confusion that everything is physical. This is not about physical credentials or identity at all. In fact, we see throughout John, interestingly, the Jewish leaders consistently misunderstand Jesus on a purely physical level. Here, Nicodemus cannot understand resetting his identity physically. In, in chapter 6, they cannot understand eating Jesus' flesh physically. In chapter 8, they cannot understand anyone younger than 50 could physically have seen Abraham. But in every case, Jesus is speaking spiritually. That's why that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. It's a different kind of birth altogether. In other words, he's saying like begets like. People in bodies give birth to people in bodies. Just like dogs give birth to dogs, cats give birth to cats, human bodies give birth to human bodies, but the spirit must give birth to the spirit. That's the kind of birth you need. And that birth only comes from above. As Peterson paraphrases, you need a birth from out of this world. 
Jesus turns Nicodemus' theology about physical birth on its head. Physical pedigree and religious credentials are not enough to see the kingdom. He needs to be remade by the power of God's spirit. And it's striking, isn't it, that this is the religious teacher of Israel par excellence, and he needs rebirth or he won't see the kingdom. That's why Nicodemus is such a perfect example for John to use. If someone that high up and respected in religious life needs to be born again, then everyone needs to be born again. This is binary. You're either reborn or not reborn. It's not like some people are closer than others to eternal life. It's not like someone is 80% towards salvation. Others are only 10% there. It's not like some just need a little help getting over the line. The rest of us need more help. No. We all need rebirth. No matter how good or bad we think we are, we need to be born again. You're either spiritually dead to, to God or alive to God. There's no in-between. There's no evolution or gradual transformation from flesh to spirit. It's a different kind of birth altogether. It's not a remodel, but a complete remaking from the inside. Jim Boyce illustrates this with a, a rusty old water pump. When the natural man tries to improve his old nature by religion without rebirth, When you try to improve yourself, trying to be more religious or moral in order to better your standing with God, it's like painting an old rusty pump that is over a well of bad water. Sure, you can paint it. You can make it look new and really nice. It will look a lot better to everyone who's walking by than that old rusty pump did. You could even give it a golden handle. People could even write poems about your beautiful pump. Even construct a monument to it. But nothing you do will change the fact that the water under that pump is bad. You don't need a new pump. You need a new well. You must be born again. This is not turning a new leaf. It's getting a new nature. And only God can do that. Jesus says, don't marvel that I say this. There's nothing optional about being born again. Then Jesus goes further. Let's look at verse 8. He goes further describing what this rebirth is. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay, people living back then, obviously did not have our understanding of meteorology or barometric pressure. Wind was completely unpredictable. But it was also completely observable. There's no question when wind is happening. And even today, I remember vividly in my childhood when the tornadoes came to the farm country in southwestern Minnesota, and you hunker down in the basement Hearing that sound, you know for certain you're not controlling that wind. It is blowing where it pleases. The other thing that was certain, though, is when you visited a farm with the trees down and sheds that were flattened, you could not deny that a great wind had been there. The evidence was undeniable. 
Jesus says the rebirth is like that. Like the wind, it's not something humans can control or manipulate. It happens to you. Rebirth is received, not achieved. A baby does not achieve his birth. Being born is something that happens to you. This is God's work. God does it by his power. Can't control it. But also, like wind, you cannot deny the rebirth happened because the evidence is undeniable. When the Spirit of God blows into a person's soul, there's no mistaking what happened. And those of you who have been born again know exactly what I'm talking about. Your eyes have been opened to Jesus and his kingdom. There's new life, new desires, things you used to hate, you now love. Things you used to love, you now hate. It's like a newborn as their eyes open and begin to adjust to this new world that they are in. They start to get focused. They see shadows and then images. You have new sensitivities. That's why it's so exciting to be around baby Christians. They have a newfound love for the word of God. And they may have even been reading the Bible before. But now, they say, now I see. Now I understand. Now I can't get enough. Things are making sense to me. And church used to be lame and a chore. Now I love being with the family of God. And I used to not think twice about doing X, Y, Z. But now I realize it's a sin. And I feel convicted. I don't want to do that anymore. Most of all, I love Jesus and I can't get enough of him. Now you didn't control that. But the evidence is undeniable. You're born again. As R.C. Sproul said, if you have any affection for Christ at all, it is because God the Holy Spirit in his sweetness, in his power, and in his mercy, and in his grace has been to the cemetery of your soul and raised you from the dead. That's rebirth. Now, for many people, These changes are almost instantaneous. But for others, these changes happen more slowly, and that's normal. As Tim Keller points out, every physical birth is a little different as well, isn't it? Some babies are boisterous and immediately super active, but other babies go directly to the NICU and spend considerable time there before they're developed enough to even leave the hospital. It's the same with spiritual birth. Some see immediate impact. Life changes dramatically, instantly. For others, the change is much slower as they learn and develop. But what's common in every situation is new life. They're awakened to a new perspective. Awareness may be gradual. Conviction of sin may be gradual. Obedience may be gradual. But there's life and a change of direction toward obedience to God. That's rebirth. Third in your outline. Number three, how does this rebirth happen? Verse nine, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? A number of Greek scholars note this is probably better translated How can these things happen? Nicodemus is saying, okay, I understand you're not talking about physical, but how does this new heart, spirit, birth happen? Verse 10, Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Jesus says, you're the PhD of Hebrew scriptures, and you don't understand? 
You're the Father Abraham chair of biblical studies, research professor of the Old Testament, and you don't understand these things? From Ezekiel 36 and other Old Testament references, Jesus clearly indicates here that rebirth is a subject that Nicodemus should have known about from the Hebrew Bible. Jesus continues in verse 12, I have told you earthly things and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He tells Nicodemus he's descended from heaven. Now, this isn't like writing a book saying heaven is for real, where someone has supposedly been to heaven and comes back to tell us about it. No, it's not that I visited heaven. That's where I come from. Heaven is my home. That's where my authority comes from. Jesus is ramping up his posture in the dialogue here pretty significantly. What Nicodemus started as a friendly social challenge dialogue between two rabbis has turned into something very uncomfortable for Nicodemus. Kostenberger points out the general progression of the dialogue that we've looked at. The contributions made by Nicodemus steadily decrease in length as the exchanges ensue. He has, Nicodemus has 24 words in the first exchange, 18 words in the second exchange, then only four words in the third, and zero in the last. The senior rabbi of Israel is gradually relegated to the background. The teacher has become the student. As the more than rabbi from heaven takes center stage. Now, when Jesus says earthly things that he's already told him, he's speaking of the rebirth. And it might seem strange at first that rebirth is an earthly thing because it's born from above, but it's an earthly subject that he's teaching about because rebirth happens here on earth. That's the starting point of life in the kingdom. But there's way more to the kingdom, way more to these heavenly realities that Jesus could reveal. Jesus is saying, if you don't understand rebirth, which happens here, then the fullness of my revelation is way beyond you. I can't give you more teaching about kingdom life until you understand this. But then Jesus properly answers Nicodemus' question about how the rebirth happens. Verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We'll come back to this bit about Moses and the serpent, but I first want to concentrate on this central idea here, that the Son of Man will be lifted up. This is a clear reference to his future crucifixion and ultimately his exaltation. This is how these things are possible. The cross is how the rebirth can happen. Again, physical birth, a new baby is is a helpful analogy. Just because there's no effort on the baby's part to achieve his birth doesn't mean there's no effort on anyone's part to achieve his birth. I think there are some ladies here who would agree with me on this. Mothers know there's a lot of effort by someone involved, isn't there? Tim Keller notes something. This is beautiful. Just pay attention to this. Jesus says later in John 16, he says this. When a woman is giving birth, 
She has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Consider the first century, no epidurals, no painkillers. Birth often came at great cost and suffering to the mother, sometimes even her own life. Well, our spiritual birth comes at great cost as well, doesn't it? The suffering and death of the Son of Man. And what makes this statement so fascinating in John 16 is when Jesus refers to the woman giving birth, he says that her hour has come. Well, that's a strange way to describe it. But it's not a strange phrase in the Gospel of John. If you remember, Rick, a few weeks ago, explained that Jesus consistently refers to his upcoming suffering and death on the cross as my hour. He repeats, my hour has not yet come. Or finally, my hour has come. Well, here he says the mother's hour has come to suffer and deliver this new life. Let me read again what follows. When she has delivered the baby, she no longer, remember the, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Do you see? Jesus, as we read in Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Through his labor and suffering and death, we've been delivered as spiritual babies into eternal life. We're born again because of his work on the cross. The cross is how these things can happen. The Son of Man lifted up, as he says, is how the rebirth is possible. No one can be born again without the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now let's consider what Jesus says about Moses and the serpent. He's he's referencing a very familiar story to Nicodemus and all the Jews. It's about the Hebrews after they came out of the Exodus in Numbers 21. Let me just read it. It's a very short story. From Mount Hor, they set out, by the way, to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water, and that we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many in Israel died. So the context here is that people rebelled against God. God sent a plague like he did on the Egyptians, though this time on the Hebrews. And it's like an Indiana Jones nightmare. Snakes with venom like fire, people getting poisoned, dying. It continues in verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Here's Jesus' analogy. The Hebrews that were dying physically could look to the bronze serpent and live. People who are dead spiritually can look to Jesus and live. People who are in danger physically could look to the bronze serpent, trusting in God's provision for healing, and they would live. Likewise, people who are in danger spiritually 
could look to the Son on the cross, trusting God's provision for healing and live. Now, in Moses' day, this was a simple gaze of faith. Not perfect faith, but obedient faith. Some of those Israelites may have had doubts about this. Some, no doubt, looked right away. Others may have procrastinated and rationalized not looking to the bronze serpent. But for all who lived, there had come a time when they looked, and that's all that was required. They couldn't offer a trade to God for healing. They couldn't offer to clean up their lives to earn healing. They couldn't do anything except look to the bronze serpent. It's the same with Jesus. We may not all come with the same level of doubt or understanding, but that's not the criteria. The difference is you either look to the man upon the cross for your salvation or you don't. And those who do will have eternal life. You cannot offer a trade to God to enter the kingdom. You cannot offer to clean up your life in order to earn salvation and eternal life. You cannot do anything except look to Jesus on that cross. Listen to Don Carson as he summarizes. Here then is the frankest answer to Nicodemus's question. How can these things happen? Answer. The kingdom of God is seen or entered, the new birth experienced, and eternal life begins through the saving cross work of Christ received by faith. Rebirth and looking to Jesus go together. God does the work, but you must look to Jesus in faith. Repentance, faith, and rebirth are directly linked. One does not come without the other. Finally, in your outline number four, who? Verse 15, the end of it, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Who? This is for you. You must be born again. It's interesting in the original, it's plural, though when Jesus says it, you all must be born again. Everyone needs this. In the 1970s, Chuck Colson wrote a book called Born Again about his becoming a Christian during the aftermath of the Watergate scandal. And later, politicians started to identify themselves as born-again Christians. Just to be very clear about what Jesus is saying in our passage, the phrase born-again Christian is redundant. There's no such thing as a Christian who is not born again. Every true Christian is born again. You cannot be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, a heaven-bound believer, unless you're born again. And trying to live the Christian life as a spiritually dead person does not work. I have a friend from my childhood named Brad. He's sort of the last of the true mountain men. He's also a believer. And one of his areas of expertise is horses. And one thing that he said that I'll never forget You cannot train a horse until he's broken. If you try to train a wild stallion to obey you before he's broken, it will not end well for you. Only after the horse is broken can it be trained to obey. It's the same with us, my friends. If you take a person who's not born again, who hasn't experienced rebirth, 
And you add to that person religious training, rule following, church attendance, external morality, they are still spiritually dead. In God's eyes, they are fundamentally unchanged, unbroken, like painting the rusty well. Makes no difference. We need a new well. We need to be born again. We need to be broken. We need rebirth to start the Christian life. Once you are born again, everything changes. You have a new heart. The spirit comes in you, a a heart that's receptive to God and his word. Then you can be trained for obedience that pleases God. A horse that is broken, you can start training him because his relationship with his master has fundamentally changed. After rebirth, our relationship to our master is fundamentally changed. You have a new heart. You can begin obeying God by the Spirit's power. You can begin your training in righteousness, but not before you're born again. Trying to train an unbroken horse will not end well for you. Likewise, trying to be righteous without rebirth, trying to be religious without rebirth will not end well for you. That night, Nicodemus came to Jesus as religious, but not reborn. And Jesus tells him there's an eternal difference between mere religion and rebirth. Listen to Chuck Swindoll. Religion says by an external system of deeds, you can gain God's favor. Rebirth says no. By an internal gift of grace, God gives you his life through Jesus Christ. Religion says I can achieve God's favor by what I do. When judgment day comes, God will see that my good outweighs my bad. Rebirth says no. Before the rebirth, all my righteous actions are like filthy rags. I have no good in myself. I can only rely on Christ's death on my behalf. At the end of our passage today, it appears... That Nicodemus is unchanged. And that is sad. But that's not the end of his story. Later in chapter 7, we begin to notice something. Nicodemus sticks out his neck for Jesus to the Sanhedrin. Something's happening to Nicodemus. And at the end of John's gospel, we see something even more remarkable. After the crucifixion, when the Son of Man was lifted up, it was Nicodemus with Joseph of Arimathea who approached the authorities and boldly asked for the body of Jesus for burial. At a time when all of Jesus' disciples had run away in fear, not wanting any association with the man who had just been executed. That's dangerous. In contrast, Nicodemus raises his hand in a very public way and identifies personally with Jesus Christ. That is a changed man. That is a man who looked to Jesus and lived. That's a man who's gone from mere religion to rebirth. And like Nicodemus, you must be born again. Will you look to Jesus this morning, lifted up on that cross, and receive him as your savior and as your master to obey? Believe on him and have eternal life. Would you please stand with me as we close? Our Father, we thank you for the new birth. We thank you for why it's possible 
the Son of Man lifted up for our sins, crucified for us. You turning your face away from him so it wouldn't turn away from us. Lord, thank you for this new birth. I pray for those here this morning who are not born again. May your spirit blow into their souls and make them alive to the things of God. Help them to see clearly Jesus and his kingdom, that that they might look to him and live eternally. We pray for Jesus' sake and for his glory.